Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. And what a week. And what weeks to come since we all got together uh, about 10 seconds ago. Politics moves fast sometimes. So if it's okay with all of you, very quickly, I'm going to uh, reflect on my thoughts as to what is happening as far as any thoughts are valid at the moment or, you know, we needs a psychiatrist and uh, reason plays no part. But anyway, I'll try and make sense of it all. Um, brilliant questions from all of you. A couple of notices before we all get going very quickly because I know... Yeah, we all want to get going, don't we, at the moment. Um, You've got to, all of you, come to the Edinburgh Festival uh, for the Rock and Roll Politics live shows there. And uh, just a reminder, uh, you can get tickets on the Edinburgh Fringe website. Steve Richards presents Rock and Roll Policy. I'm on at Venue 43, the place I was in 2019 before you know, the pandemic. Uh, The space at the Symposium Hall Amphitheatre every day from August the 15th, basically the last two weeks. It's going to be a different show every day because we have so much to explore together. And by then, even more. So uh, please join me. And of course, I hope more of you will join me on Patreon. Funnily enough, I had a weird experience. I promise you, I don't do this very often. But I listened back to the talk on the relationship between Harold Wilson and Marcia Williams, and it kind of shone light on that enigmatic period of British politics, a sort of ghostly period, I think, he says immodestly. Um, But I think it sheds light on now, or certainly the fall of Johnson. I'm going to reflect much more on what's happened since the fall of Johnson. But he never had close political allies to whom he could turn throughout his career. I know he had people from uh, when he was mayor of London who he brought in sporadically, who then left and came back and all that kind of thing. But Wilson had Marcia Williams from the beginning of his leadership in opposition to the end when he voluntarily resigned as prime minister. And when people say of Wilson, what was the hold that Marcia Williams had over him, it's it's a profound misreading of the need for prime ministers for all kinds of reasons to have someone outside the cabinet, outside the intrigues of politics, who they can wholly rely on. And without such a figure, even someone as tempestuous and curious as Marcia Williams Without such a person, you are more vulnerable, I think, as a prime minister. Anyway, sign up to Patreon, you get that, and loads of other things, and thank you for those who have done so. So, before your questions, me, if that's okay with all of you. What I want to reflect on a bit is what the start of this contest tells us about the modern Conservative Party. Now, let's go back a bit to one of our favourite words on this podcast, contextualize. Let's go back to the leadership contest of November 1990, after the fall of Thatcher, which was as equally dramatic as the fall of Johnson. Remember, Thatcher had won a landslide in 1987, and people were removing her by the autumn of 1990. The leadership contest that followed was between John Major Michael Heseltine, and Douglas Hurd. Now, of course, 
one of the big differences was that they only had to pitch their messages to Tory MPs. It was a leadership contest where only MPs decided. So that does give space for a more nuanced and less insane contest than the one we're experiencing at the moment, where the ultimate pitch is to the party membership. But think of those three candidates. And 1990, of course, is a hell of a long time ago, but not, you know, it's not 1890. There they were, uh, substantial figures with a worked out sense of what conservatism was, uh, all in different ways, pragmatically pro-European. It was the last contest where all three candidates were, one way or another, pro-European, major being the most doubtful uh, and has now become, of course, a passionate uh, advocate for the chaos of Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost's Brexit. And then what followed was very interesting. Major got in uh, and it was an ambiguous victory because those who knew Major well knew he wasn't a Thatcherite. But Thatcher, rather like Johnson in this respect anyway, was a poor judge of character. She wasn't, she didn't understand people. And she thought Major was one of us, one of her tribe. And so over time, he struggled. But at first, Major kind of made the right moves. I think that period between November 1990, when he became prime minister with Chris Patton as party chairman, up to their election win in 1992, was the great lost moment for modern Toryism because they erratically moved their party away from the Thatcherite right and screaming hostility to the European Union. Though note, no one then in the parliamentary party was calling for Britain to leave the European Union. And the leadership contest took the form, they all knew, all three of them, that the poll tax had to go. None of them said it as straightforwardly as that, but they formed sentences and phrases that would give them the space to remove it, the great kind of Thatcherite policy of her third term, uh, once they were safely elected. And look back at the other stuff they were all saying. Um, and it was, although campaigning, and campaigning means you you, you are not candid, um, it was and felt so much weightier than the current uh, bonkers contest. And this is why it is bonkers and what a brilliant book there is to be done as to why the modern Conservative Party has moved on from autumn 1990 to now. This is why it's crazy. First, uh, the tax-cutting race. Uh, All the candidates, with the partial exception of Rishi Sunak, getting into a kind of uh, auction over who can cut taxes most. Oh, yeah, I know. Uh, I'll certainly... uh, bring back, uh, cut the national insurance rise, that won't go ahead, Uh, we'll give the money back. Um, But also, oh yeah, I know, I'll cut VAT uh, on day one. Um, Oh yeah, I know, this one-off windfall tax, that's a kind of act of socialism, that will be reversed. And on it goes. Uh, Corporation tax, oh yeah, yeah, we'll cut that, or we won't go ahead with the planned rise. And as you listen carefully, you hear nothing about how uh, the money will be 
raised beyond efficiencies, a reform. These uh, great deceptive words that come up in British politics um, and rarely address the issue of public spending. You know, reform might be a good thing, but rarely does it kind of save tons of money. And in some cases, reform, certainly in the short term, can cost more. So there they all are. And having been so explicit, all of them, uh, about tax uh, cuts, remember, they will get elected in September, one of them. And there will be a budget that autumn. Liz Truss has said on day one of her leadership, you know, trying to get ahead, old Trussy, you know, day one tax cuts. They will have to do it. You can't pop up in uh, a budget with your new chancellor saying, oh, you know, we've looked at the books and we can't do it. So they will have to do it. Uh, now, Sunak is in an interesting position. I don't know if any of you watched the Andrew Neil program on Channel 4 on Sunday, but he described uh, Sunak as being the sort of candidate for the Tory left and the right are trying to find a candidate to take him on. Uh, and the Times portrayed Sunak similarly in uh, its coverage the other day. Now, this is why, to go back to our last two podcasts together, terms and definition are so important in politics. Um, if Sunak is on the left of British politics, um, where does that place those on the right of the Tory party? Or, sorry, the, not the left of British politics, the left of the Tory party. So just think about it. You know, here he is, Sunak. Um, his hero is Nigel Lawson uh, from the Thatcherite 1980s. He's a self-declared fiscal conservative. Um, but all he is doing is being a bit more grown up than the others in saying you cannot promise fairy tales. All the others are promising fairy tales. And it is interesting in the way these terms merge. Uh, so being a bit more grown up puts you on the centre ground in that, to go back very briefly to that word, that term we've been exploring in the last couple of podcasts. So Sunak, who um, delivered a spring statement which reiterated his Thatcherite verve. Remember that spring statement where he didn't do very much at all and then promised an income tax just before the election in a clunky, crude way, which raised questions about his political ability. Um, and it, it wasn't enough. Events forced him to come back and announce a multi-billion pound package weeks later. And that, I think, is the sequence you need to bear in mind for whatever happens next in the Tory leadership contest. Because whoever wins, I've said already, if it's not Sunak, these other people who pledge loads of um, tax cuts will have to implement them. But also, think of the wider context when they become prime minister in September. They'll get a honeymoon, all Tory prime ministers do, although I suspect this one could be quite short-lived. Um, and then think about it. The new energy price cap comes in and it will be massive. And you will have on every outlet the new kind of, <laughs> it's hard to describe his role in British public life, but I'm talking about Martin Lewis, you know, the finance guru. He will be on almost in tears on every uh, outlet saying he's run out of levers to help people. They've got to have more help from the government. And a prime minister on a honeymoon is not going to resist such calls. Uh, 
So, the first thing a Tory prime minister will probably do, whoever it is, is spend more money. Um, forget about all their stuff during the leadership contest. The pressures, as Sunak discovered after his spring statement, was to spend more. And that is just the beginning. Because remember, Ukraine carries on. Um, uh, Johnson now no longer phoning Zelensky on a daily basis. It's so those phone calls whenever he was in trouble. They were so unsubtle, his team in number 10. Ah, the prime minister has phoned President Zelensky, you know. Um, but that is an area they can't con control. And all their MPs, almost without exception, are calling for higher levels of defence spending. Uh, remember the chaos of the NHS uh, spending and social care. Now, they all went into the 2019 election pledged to sort out social care. And when he first became prime minister in July 2019, Boris Johnson promised uh, that he had a plan for social care. He didn't. It was one of his debut prime ministerial untruths. Uh, but they all went into the 2019 election pledged to do something. Where's the money going to come from? Are they going to go into the next election pledged to cut spending on the NHS, which they've added to with the national assurance rise, assuming it stays in place, which it might not? Um, or are they going to have to explain how they are going to deliver the social care plan they've all promised? Or maybe they won't. Maybe that will go into a review. But if it does, that, that's the fate of all social care plans, in inverted commas, another review. Uh, but if it does, they're still leveling up. Now, Michael Gove appointed as his advisor Andy Holding, who had done a lot of work on the implications of leveling up. He had had discussions, actually, with people like uh, Will Hutton from a different political perspective. And I know that Andy Haldane and Michael Gove know that billions are required for leveling up to work. It's not the only thing, um, but it is a factor. Where's the money going to come from? And how are these candidates screaming about tax cuts on day one going to find the money? That they will have to, I've got absolutely no doubt. Not for all these things. They will uh, busk levelling up, I suspect. They will busk defence spending. They won't do social care. Um, but cost of living means they'll have to throw more money at it um, or else they'll be miles behind in the polls very quickly. So all these candidates are going to begin their regime spending. And nor will they have the time before the next general election to, in inverted commas, shrink the state. Tories love it. Their newspapers love it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Old so-and-so is calling for the shrinking of the state. Absolutely. It's too big and unwieldy. Set people free, to use the Thatcher phrase. Um, yeah, they all love the idea in theory. But if they come up with precise spending cuts, say, on defence, which they won't, or levelling up, which they can't, um, or the NHS, which they most emphatically can't in the short term, um, all hell will break loose. So there won't be, in the build-up to the next election, a shrinking of the state. So I think whoever wins this thing, um, with the possible partial exception, but only partial exception of Sunak, Remember, being grown up is on the centre ground, you know, even though he is an absolute committed Thatcherite. Um, what, I mean, even that is crazy, and he's the grown-up. Um, 
they will have to borrow more up until the election because the tax cuts will be very expensive, billions and billions. And as uh, some of the great writers in the FT have been making clear, that does not, and at the IFS, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, that does not lead to immediate economic growth, as these um, leadership candidates claim. Well, we've got to have tax cuts before anything else, because that leads to economic growth. That's the way to do it. It won't. So I reckon for all the kind of stuff about fiscal conservatism, fiscal rectitude, uh, they will borrow to finance tax cuts and they will increase public spending in the short term to deal with all the nightmares in this unproductive economy. And one of the reasons the economy is unproductive, 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 is because of Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost's hard Brexit. And this is the other interesting area. For now, um, the contest is insanely depressing. So you have people like Jeremy Hunt, Tom Tugendhat, who know, you know, Lord Frosty Frost Brexit. Uh, was a disaster. They can't say anything because their target audience, these Brexit MPs and Brexit members, um, will start foaming at the mouth at any hint of doubt about Johnson and Lord Frosty Frost Brexit. So they are all, I mean, some do believe it, of course, uh, you know, the, the fanatics who have used this country as a kind of plaything for their fantasies over many years. Um, but even those who, who know it's not true are pretending it is true, that the hard Brexit, the only challenge is to make it work. Um, I mean, Tom Tugendhat, who again is, is described in this more fundamental divide between grown-ups and silly candidates, uh, he's meant to be on the grown-up wing, um, but he's called for deregulation to make Brexit work. Um, but there's, there's already a huge fantasy bill under Jake, Jacob Rees-Mogg's department uh, cutting regulation. The twist is that when they examine these regulations, a lot of them were proposed by the British government to help Britain and to deregulate will harm the UK economy. Meanwhile, they are all trapping themselves into another clash with the EU over Northern Ireland. Oh, yeah, the, uh, the legislation to unilaterally get out of the protocol. Uh, we support it. We've got to have that there as part of our armory. And though there will be differences depending on who gets it, if one of the fanatics get it, they will flourish in a new war with the European Union as the economy sinks. That's their dilemma. If they want to go into the next general election with an economy showing some signs of growth and with public services recovering from the current chaos. Think of the backlog at the NHS and, you know, airports and trains not running and all the rest of it. They want to be seen to be getting a grip on all of that. They cannot afford an economic war with the European Union. So how do they get out of these conundrums? And one final reflection before we come on to all of you. This will be the third Tory prime minister uh, since they got back into power to be elected by this uh, elderly right-wing 
membership. Actually, technically, Theresa May wasn't, of course. She was elected by the MPs because in another wacky contest in 2016, all the candidates fell out. And so she didn't have to go to the party membership. Um, but uh, me, who knows? <laughs> might happen again. You just don't know. But one way or another, this is the third prime minister to be elected uh, by the Conservative Party alone. And they have now been in office for four terms. You know, we had the Brexit referendum, the years of chaos actually that preceded it. I remember uh, Craig Oliver, who worked for David Cameron, saying to me how surprised they were that when after their election win in 2015, giving them a small overall majority, uh, and Cameron said that they were going to go ahead with the referendum early in this that term, that all energy was sucked out of everything else. There was an obsession about the referendum from the moment it was announced. And as we then know, all energy was sucked out for years following it. And we're still in that situation. But here is something quite interesting, I think. So just to, to park that thought, if England carries on uh, electing conservative governments, you know, who knows what's going to happen next time, um, there will be more of this, that the entire electorate, except for a Tory party membership, uh, will be excluded from elections of prime ministers at key moments. And there is no more key moment than now. Uh, yeah, let's park that thought. I mean, it's no more than the thought. I mean, it's up to England, really, uh, what they do about it. And let's add the Labour Party uh, in terms of posing an attractive uh, but radical alternative to this dysfunctional governing party. Why? Why the huge change since uh, 1990, where you had those three decent figures, um, Hesseltine, who had been, I, I call him the great Tory modernizer, even though he's about 95 now. He's not. I know he's not. Don't email me to say he's not 95. I, you, you know what I mean. It's a kind of bad joke. Um, uh, Hesseltine was the great Tory modernizer, who recognized the good that government can do. That didn't mean he was a Labour person. He was absolutely not. But he was not so blinded by this philosophy, oh, yeah, yeah, in all circumstances, cut, small state. And, of course, did huge amounts to uh, inner cities in the 80s and persuaded Thatcher to spend some more money. I read a letter he wrote to her. It was very cleverly written. But all the others pretended to you know, support her, as this current cabinet has done with Johnson until last week. Um, he was a big figure. Douglas Hurd was a... Uh, intelligent, restrained, polite foreign secretary amongst other posts. Um, and we know about Major. Uh, Major, a figure who turned out to be, you know, going forward substantially to the left of the Cameron Osborne project in terms of the economy anyway, and his view of the role of the state. Uh, but there they were. So what has happened? And I think it is largely explained by Brexit. You could feel the Tory party changing uh, in the party conference held immediately after Britain fell out of the exchange rate mechanism in September 1992. Now, that party conference should have been a victory rally. Uh, the Tories remarkably had won a fourth successive election. Uh, John Major uh, had won more votes than Thatcher, actually. He got a tiny majority in terms of seats, but in terms of votes, it was the biggest win. It was far from being a victory rally. 
Uh, it reminded me and others of Labour Party conferences in the late 70s, early 80s in the passionate anger over the issue of Europe and then specifically the Maastricht Treaty, which was the kind of key treaty of the 1990s. And even though Major had negotiated very skillfully opt-outs on the single currency and the social chapter, things that kind of made them foam even more uh, kind of out of control, out of their mouths, you know, uh, he, he, had, um, he had dealt with some of that. But they were angry. I went to fringe meetings where Hesseltine was shouted down in the main conference hall itself. Norman Tebbit made an astonishing intervention where he implicitly attacked Major and praised his Chancellor, Norman Lamont. Um, it was like something out of Julius Caesar. And that's when they changed. And it fed on itself in a way because rebels find, although, you know, in fairness to them, they believed in it, you know, they were, became ideologically uh, committed to, first of all, limiting Britain's role in the European Union and then getting out. But they started to enjoy it to the point where the Tory party is as difficult to lead, in some ways more difficult than the Labour Party, which is a real reversal of roles. Think how long Thatcher was there before they finally got rid of her. Um, you know, November 1990, she won in 79. She had been leader of the party since 75. Uh, Cameron gone after... Well, he, he led the coalition for five years, but then as, as a prime minister with an overall majority, he was gone in a year. Theresa May staggered on um, after lo uh, losing her party's overall majority in 2017 for two more years of hell. Johnson, uh, deservedly, uh, I mean, he's been treated more tolerantly because he delivered Brexit, delivered Brexit. Um, but he's gone. And I wonder how long the next one will last. I mean, obviously, with the election looming, a degree of discipline will uh, reinforce itself up to the election. But if they win or lose, uh, they'll be off again. Um, and it is, as I say, a kind of huge change in a relatively short period of time. And the Tory party now is not one that, although maybe the next leader will cleverly claim to move back into that area, you know, that small C conservative revered institutions too much in my view, but that's what they did, and turn back from kind of revolutionary economic policy and all the rest of it. Of course, the other big thing was Thatcherism. She converted them into a passionate ideological party, not just over Europe, but this thing about the state. And they haven't realized they should, I know they've all read Charles Moore's biography of her and all the rest of it. They really should look back. Her prescription fitted the late 1970s and early 1980s from a Tory perspective. Um, and although she would claim it was eternal in its application, it wasn't. And it didn't really work economically. It did work politically because she was saying, look at the state, it's causing chaos, it's dysfunctional, winter of discontent. I'm going to come in, set people free from the state and all the rest of it. But since then... And this leadership contest has not reflected on this intelligently. People turned to the state after the financial crash. People turned to the state big time with the pandemic and now with the cost of living crisis. And yet they are all talking about shrinking the state. None of them are talking about the good the state can do with the partial exception of that left-wing Marxist Rishi Sunak.
Well, let's see how it all goes. We're going to have to, uh, you know, follow it very closely, contextualize it, you know, uh, and uh, make sense of it all together. If it's okay with all of you, I'm going to turn to a few questions. Now, I'm not going to read as many questions out as usual for two reasons. One, your questions, as ever, are brilliant, um, but they're dating quite fast. <laughs> I mean, this is a fast-moving story. I mean, as I record this, um, some candidates are still in who won't be in by the time you hear this, I suspect, in some cases, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but let's um, do a few uh, of your uh, questions on this kind of dramatic, political, epic story as the Conservatives alone elect another prime minister. Mark Holstock writes, has anybody noticed that there is a major name missing from the list of political giants seeking to replace one of the great prime ministers since uh, Anthony Eden? Where in this stellar lineup is the man who gave us shipping companies without ships? Step forward, Chris Grayling, your country needs you. Uh, no bread making, but we'll be listening to this as we drive from Teesdale through Arkengarthdale to Wensleydale. Well, what a, that is another beautiful image, especially in the glorious sunshine. Um, yeah, well, I mean, such is the state of the party. And by the way, leadership contests are always a symptom of a party facing various existential crises. Same with the Labour Party. Um, and they're never a cause, they're a symptom. And um, so, yeah, it would have been, no, you can, oh, yeah, oh, now Chris Grayling's in, you know. Now, in fairness, Chris Grayling even he would not contemplate that. Um, but figures on the sillier wing uh, than Chris Grayling did throw their hats in the ring in the first phase of a contest before everything narrowed down a bit. Now, enjoy your drive in Teesdale. Um, Tony Ahmet wonders, does the demise of Boris Johnson mean a huge setback for Labour and its prospects for winning the next general election? Well, Tony, partly depends what happens next. Obviously, if what happens next is what happened in November 1990, that major kind of symbolised change, major and pattern. I remember the Times columnist David Aronovich was head of news at the BBC and he was saying, um, I mean, David was already analysing like a, a columnist, which is why I had to get out of the BBC because it just didn't work there. Um, but he said, you know, this is a phase now of Christian democracy following Thatcherism. And that's how it felt then. But that's not, and, and it made it very difficult for Neil Kinnock. Um, voters thought they had elected a change of government. But the Thatcherites, although she started briefing against Major, uh, on the whole behaved themselves up until the 92 election. Now, if all that happens, uh, it will be a challenge, but I don't think it will. I think this is a party in deep turmoil at the moment, and it won't go. There will be a honeymoon, uh, but the turmoil is uh, profound and really unresolved since the fall of Thatcher. Why did they remove Margaret Thatcher. Did they want to be Thatcherite but without her? Did they no longer want to be Thatcherite, in which case what did they want, etc., etc.? Those questions really have never been answered, which is why basically what we're getting here in the leadership contest is they're all searching for Margaret Thatcher. And as I say, she was a product of the late 70s, early 80s in many respects. Um, but so the Labour challenge really 
is the same as it was. Um, how is it reading uh, the turmoil of the UK? And uh, you have to, you know, I've said this before, uh, obsessed by it, you have to, as a Labour leader of the opposition, reassure and excite. And it's bloody difficult because in reassuring, you block a lot of doors. Uh, I haven't got time to Keir Starmer last week amidst the drama made his Brexit speech. We'll reflect on that when we look more at Labour. Obviously, at the moment, it's the governing party uh, that is, uh, you know, in a degree of turmoil in a surreal way. Boris Johnson's still there as I speak. Um, and wasn't that surreal, by the way? Last um, Thursday, he resigned and then appointed a new cabinet and chaired a cabinet meeting. And the chairing of a new cabinet by a prime minister is the ultimate symbol of prime ministerial power. Um, normally, normally. Uh, but this was a silly cabinet. There's a lot of silliness around at the moment. Uh, and, and uh, you know, anyway, uh, yeah. So, so Labour need to focus on that. Reassure and excite. Don't look back but look what is in front of your eyes and ahead uh, because it is different, always. Blair didn't look back to Wilson. Keir Starmer shouldn't look back too much to Blair. Obviously, there are eternal lessons about winning elections and losing, but this is a whole new context, as I've said before. But we'll look at um, uh, Labour another time, if that's okay. I've got a lot of questions about is this good or bad news uh, for uh, Keir Starmer. Um, and... Let's let let's address Labour on another occasion. Um, they're not in a leadership contest, you know. What I mean, it's so ridiculous if the Durham Police had uh, removed uh, Keir Starmer and Angela Rayner. No apology, I note from um, uh, the Daily Mail, who for days and days, in the end, in effect, I think, persuaded the Durham Police to reopen that investigation. Found nothing, and um, the Daily Mail just accused Keir Starmer of putting pressure on. The police, I mean, you know, they must think their readers are bloody stupid. Maybe they are. I don't know, but I doubt it. Um, I, I don't think it, you know, the, I never underestimate the influence of the mail, and I know it's a powerful force at the, on the BBC and all, they're so scared of it. Um, but it's so unsubtle at the moment. I wonder whether it's as powerful as it used to be. We'll soon find out. Uh, anyway, uh, kind of back to uh, Brexit, A uh, email from Sarah Kinsella, who writes about a lot of things. Um, and she offers, by the way, to be part of the legal team and the dog walking cooperative um, because her dog listens. Poppy, her dog listens to the podcast, of course, and um, will no doubt be emailing questions soon. Anyway, she, uh, among her points, uh, wonders whether there is buyer's remorse over Brexit. She's been in Cornwall and she says, we went to a large chemist which had run out of Arnica and which had had it on order for several weeks. We went to order fish and chips at 10 past five and were told that there were 32 covers before us that had ordered at 5pm and they didn't have the staff to meet this demand. Visitor numbers were down, as I think many would be trying to fly abroad or couldn't afford the petrol. And generally, there is an acceptance that the EU investment that had been used well in Cornwall, e.g. Penzance, uh, Regeneration, Falmouth, Maritime Museum, would not be matched by Westminster after all. So, yeah, it is interesting. I know uh, Cornwall. And um, it was really uh, the letters to the local 
Cornish paper, The Cornishman, after the referendum were fascinating. I was down there and bought a copy. And lots of them were writing, I, I voted Brexit, but I didn't realise we were going to lose the funding in this way. And it's beginning to really impact now. Um, and the staffing situation down there is incredible. I mean, you know, it's even bad in London, but lots of places I've noticed have, have closed down, even in places like St. Ives, which is still packed, because they can't get the staff. Um, anyway, Sarah thinks, uh, if Labour and the Lib Dems were to adopt a rejoining of the customs union and single market to assist the economy, the farmers and fishers, then we, they can win the moral and obvious argument later about rejoining the EU. Well, that's quite a sequence, uh, Sarah, and as I say, I'm going to discuss that quite soon, uh, Labour's uh, challenge. But, you know, we're kind of looking around at this governing party. That's the other thing, really. They're not a sense of entitlement is the wrong word because such is the feverish nature of British politics. Uh, ministers, even these ministers who get re-elected virtually every time, feel besieged quite a lot of the time. But I think a complacency seeps in uh, when they are elected again and again about what voters really might think of what they're saying at the moment. Onwards now from Ashley Amos. Uh, how about doing a rock and roll politics show in the city of Bristol? Living in Western Supermare, I could come along to the show and I predict that no one in Bristol would arrive with Union Jack socks. Well, I might, Ashley, you know. Stuart's given me three pairs. So um, I might be there. I'd love to do a show. It's a good idea, Bristol. Um, I know we've been through an even more dramatic and turbulent time than normal, in inverted commas. Important inverted commas, because there's no normality. But why is no one except Will Hutton in The Observer talking about Brexit driving down uh, sterling? A weak pound is pushing up inflation by making imports more expensive. That's before we get to labour shortages. Yep, you're right. And this is, again, the conundrum. Uh, if Labour come in, if they don't get the economy growing, they'll be out again very quickly. The bar's much higher with the for a Labour government in the markets, in the media, and so on. Uh, and if this new government, when elected probably in September, doesn't uh, get the pound up and the economy growing, it will be in deep trouble by the time of the election. But Brexit makes it much harder. And both the opposition party, uh, with some minor adjustments so far, and all the candidates are committed to Lord Frosty Frost and Johnson's Brexit. I think it will change, but we'll do a Brexit special as well. Now, this is important. Sean Coldstone has written, I noticed that our friend Lee Rowley resigned from the government. I remember someone in one of the live shows mentioning him, and the next minute he was in the government. Perhaps our rock and roll politics community would like to predict who will be the next prime minister. Well, you've just done it, haven't you, uh, Sean? It's, it's clearly got to be Lee uh, Rowley, hasn't it? You know, he's got to be our choice resigned. Johnson fell almost immediately afterwards. He is driving everything. And finally, Joel Witz from Plymouth. Do you think there's any chance of an embittered Boris Johnson becoming a Trump-like spectre over the party? If the new leader struggles initially, or if the Conservatives were to lose the next election, I think we are likely to see a big I told you so from Boris Johnson. My sense is that this could lead to a deep and perhaps even generational split in the party. 
or perhaps his lack of fixed ide- ideology means this will be unlikely. Uh, see you live at King's Place soon. Oh, thank you, Joe. Yeah, see you there. Um, yeah, September the 19th in King's Place. What a God knows where we'll be by then, um, before the party conferences and etc. Yeah, um, Johnson's role is still uh, unclear. He's clearly now uh, miserable and fuming about what has happened. He clearly thinks it's unfair. You can tell that from his resignation statement. Um, And he has big calls to make. I mean, I suspect there's part of him who looks at Churchill, who had terrible setbacks but then came back, uh, in which case he will need to keep his seat for now. I don't think he will be embarrassed by having to declare his vast income from speeches and books, uh, which you have to do if you stay on as an MP. Um, But it is awful. I suspect he'll be not liking this period of being a caretaker prime minister, even though he kind of insisted on it. Um, And he will not like being on the back benches an impotent onlooker. But he, yeah, if he sees space to make a claim that his cakeism was the only way forward. He won't put it quite like that, but that's what it is. Um, I think he would be very tempted to walk through the cakeist door. Anyway, if it's so fast moving, if it's okay with all of you, we'll stop there. Um, but we will return again uh, after another frenzied few days to see where we are. And uh, you are right, we've got to look at where this leaves Labour and the Lib Dems, and we'll do that. I mean, a lot of specials looming. The new government special or the winner of the contest special. Don't forget the electoral reform special. Yeah, that is kind of been looming for a long time. And uh, where we are with Brexit specials. This is for the podcast. I'll be exploring them all at Edinburgh in different ways and King's Place as well. So take a deep breath. Keep running, walking, bread making and all the other stuff, dog walking, uh, because it's going to be a bit frenzied the next few days. But thank you so much for listening. If you could leave a review, that would be brilliant, only if it's a good one. And let's all get together next week to make sense of it all. Thank you. Bye. Bye.